Our scripture today comes from Mark 3, verses 7 through 19. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed, from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have the authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Um, hey guys, my name is Josiah. Uh, if you're new here, welcome. Man, it's great to be here and be able to bring God's word uh, for you this morning. As I, as I come to this, um, I am reminded, like this morning, just deeply reminded of the, the privilege it is um, to be standing up here and and um, I'm deeply, deeply grateful uh, for it. Pastor Ryan, uh, thanks for allowing me uh, to stand here to share the pulpit, uh, to be able to teach. And, and I, I, as I come to the Word of God, and I come to hopefully expound something from it by His grace, realizing that, man, I'm deeply in need of it myself. Um, I'm deeply in need of what God wants to speak today. The shepherd is calling. The good shepherd is calling his sheep. And his voice is sweet. Those that are his know it. They hear it. They listen to it. If you were to come across a flock of sheep, um, like this video illustrates, you would not, be, you would not have very much luck in, in trying to uh, coordinate and corral the sheep with your own voice. Um, they wouldn't listen to you. This is because sheep only listen to one person's voice, the shepherd's. Jesus said in, in um, John chapter 10, says, I am the good shepherd. I know my voice. They listen to me. I know my sheep and my sheep know my voice. Shepherds throughout history have not worried about sheep getting mixed up with other flocks. This is really interesting. Like actually, throughout history, and um, they shepherds would typically keep their sheep in one sheepfold, like all these different shepherds, and bring all their sheep into one fold. And then there would be um, a porter guarding the gate, you know, through the night, make sure that the sheep stay safe. And the shepherds would come back, and if you were to witness this, you would see a shepherd come and call his sheep and. Some sheep would come out and go with that shepherd. And then another shepherd would come and other sheep would come out. And so on and so forth. And no sheep that was not the shepherd's would go with the wrong one. 
And so it is with us today we must understand that his call, God's call, Jesus' call, is an effectual one. It means that it is successful in what it desires. It accomplishes what it intends to. God's call is effectual. The title of this sermon is that. It is an effectual and affectionate call. That God's call to us is both going to do what it sets out to do, and it also is so affectionate towards those whom he calls. It it accomplishes what he desires. And it probably can be said that it is because of how affectionate God's, our Father's, call is, that it is so effectual. How affectionate he is, how loving he is to each of us. How that love is demonstrated in a steadfast type of way, in an unrelenting type of way. The Hebrew word has said, I have it tattooed on my hand, um, is if you read in your Bibles and you see uh, steadfast love or loving kindness, this is this word has said, and it means this unrelenting, never running dry, ever pursuing type of love. I have it written on my hand because my, wa- my wife and I, Ryan, we both have it, and then I have her, and then she has him, and to remind ourselves that we pursue each other in the same way that God has pursued us unrelenting, unquenchable type of love. His affectionate love actually makes his call effectual. If there are two major topics in the Gospel of Mark, uh, they would be Jesus' authority and following him. Jesus' authority and following him. These two big ideas are highlighted all throughout the account of Mark. Um, It is Jesus' authority as God, as creator, as healer, as redeemer, and Lord. It's his authority that he demonstrates on earth. And it's what Mark and the other gospel writers are recounting. And it is also our obedience to whatever this authority speaks. So, the big idea today is this. Jesus has the authority to call whomever he wills for the purposes of whatever he desires. Follow him. Follow him. I want you to take a minute, just reflect on that for a second. How do you feel about that? Like initially, just God has the authority to call whomever he wills, wherever he wills, and ask whatever he desires for whatever purposes he wants. How does that make you feel? How does it sit with you today? Because that's the Jesus that Mark is telling us about. That's the Jesus we're reading about. That's the authority he brings when he's walking on earth. And it is certainly the authority that he brings as we read today. It is his word to us today that we read. His voice that is speaking. And man, this flies right in the face of our culture. It really does, because our culture is one that demands a personal authority. I am the authority. I get to determine my life. There's two questions for us 
uh, that I want us to consider as we read this passage, and they are these two things. What defines my calling? God has a call on your life, or you have a call in your life, we can say that, but what defines it? And the second is, what is Jesus asking of me today? What defines your calling as a disciple of Jesus up until this point? What has defined it? And then what is Jesus asking you to follow him in right now? If Jesus is truly asking you to follow him, what is he asking you to follow him in now, today? As you think about it, I want us to guard against the thought of this, that uh, God needs a response from us. We don't need to... We don't need to believe that God needs something from us, like we're doing him a favor in responding to his call. That's not the case. God does require a response, but he does not need a response from us. He does not lack. You're not shortchanging God by refusing him today. He does not need at all anything. And what we see exemplified in Jesus, the Son of God, is complete authority. As we, even up to this point, we're only in the beginning, halfway through chapter 3. And what we've seen thus far is Jesus, he summons with authority. He calls his disciples with his authority. He teaches with authority. He heals with authority. He casts out demons with authority. He forgives sins with authority. And he rules even over the law with authority. This is, this is the Jesus we're talking about. And this is why he has these enormous crowds following him. I mean, these, these crowds that are, I don't even know how they come up with the numbers, to be honest, in, in, in the recounting of this, but like thousands of people. We're told later in an account how there's 4,000 and 5,000 people. Actually, one of the gospel writers says when he's feeding the five. I think it's the 4,000. It says uh, 4,000 men. So this doesn't, and it puts in parentheses, this does not include women and children. So it would not be unreasonable to think that in one of these followings, uh, crowds at least, there was upwards of 20,000 people following Jesus. Crazy numbers. So many people that Jesus took precautions, <laughs> we read about in verse 9. Verse 9 says that he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Like, that's how many people are following him. Everyone's pressing up against Jesus. They're saying, I need to get to Jesus because they have infirmities, they have sicknesses, they're illness. Maybe they just want some kind of blessing or something from him. I don't know. But everyone's pressing up against him. And he's like, guys, have a boat ready because this could get dangerous. We read that at, um, at one time, uh, again, there's, there's thousands of people following him. And so in this scenario, it's not unlikely that there's, again, thousands of people. And it's from no small distance either. So it says in here, from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, and Edomea. So look at this map. I don't know if you can see this. But, okay, so this is, the, this is Galilee. Capernaum is where Jesus, we, we read... This is his home, right? It's where he spent most of his time. This is most of his ministry right here. It's the Sea of Galilee. This is where he withdrew to. And then we have, this is Galilee, Judea, 
Jerusalem, Edomea. Now, I just went on Google Maps and did my best, you know, just putting two points together. And the straightest route I could possibly find from Edomea to Capernaum, and it was uh, 170 miles. Conservative. I rounded down because I just, you know, wasn't quite sure. 170 miles people came from just to see Jesus. This is the type of authority that Jesus brought. They may not be able to define it at this point, but they're hearing him and they're sensing him and they're watching him and they're saying, this is different. This man is worth following. This man is worth going after. I need to see him. Now remember the backdrop um, to this from last week. Last week, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand and then what happens? The Pharisees immediately conspire to destroy him, it says. That they, uh, they, they hold counsel with the Herodians against him and they try to figure out how to destroy Jesus. And so Jesus withdraws. He knows this. And what we see him demonstrating here is not, it's not cowardice, right? He's not afraid. He's not running from the Pharisees. But what's he doing? He's demonstrating restraint in his leadership. There's a self-control that Jesus has, and we'll I'll unpack this here. It's the same thing that he demonstrates to the demons or to, uh, to, to people that when, when he heals them, or, uh, and, and he says, tell no one. And he tells the demons here in this passage where it says the unclean spirits saw him, the verse 11, and they fell down before him. And what did they cry out? You are the son of God. The demons crying out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Jesus is not um, worried here. He's showing self-control and restraint. Remember, in this picture, in this context, all of this is going somewhere. Jesus is not arbitrarily traveling around to different places trying to figure out, like, what do I do now? You know? Hey, let's see what happens here. Jesus it has a mission. He came, more accurately, he was sent with a mission. And he is going to fulfill that mission. He conceals himself as the Messiah until the perfect time. The, 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 later in Scripture, we read Paul saying, until the right time. Until the right time. Because if people knew who he was before, he fulfilled what he was sent to do they would not receive him for what they truly needed. You hear that? If they just received him before he actually accomplished what he came to do, they would not actually receive what they needed most, and that was forgiveness and atonement for their sins. As Sinclair Ferguson, he puts it this way. I love this. He says, If people thought of him as the Son of God or even the Redeemer, without learning how he would redeem, they would never really know him. The way we know Jesus is through his work ultimately upon the cross. That's how we come to know him. Knowing him and just his miracles and his power alone and what he can demonstrate for us is not truly knowing him. Knowing him is knowing him as redeemer, as a person who's brought us into the fold, into the fold of God. You see, the Pharisees, as well as the demons, thought they thought they knew who he was. But man... No one, 
Not even Satan himself could foresee the glorious future and the fullness of the truth of what God was going to do through Christ. That God made man would exhibit his ultimate authority, yes, even over sin and death. That this was going to happen. No one could foresee that happening. And it's with this authority that Jesus came. It's why when Jesus calls someone to follow him now, or in the passage, I should say, in history, and hopefully now, that they got up and they followed him. Because it's the authoritative voice of their creator speaking to them. One day, they would know him not just as creator, but redeemer. And it's with this purpose that he calls you and I today, church. Calling us the same authoritative voice calling us. Jesus came into the world for the purpose of redeeming. His effectual call has redeemed us and he, uh, and he yet and, and I'm sorry, and what did I write there? And yet it, he does something else. He calls us into his work. He not only demonstrates his redeeming work, he calls us into the redeeming work. This is what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians when we were, when we were studying, right? That uh, we are reconciled in Christ and then also given the ministry of reconciliation and we are ambassadors for Christ. And so this is what I want to talk about today. Jesus calls you and I today, Jesus calls you and I today that the world would know him as Redeemer. So we see him calling again in this passage. Now we're, let's zoom in now into the passage. We see him now calling his disciples again, but with a, in a different way, with specificity now. To call them, follow me, but there's a different call today. He calls not only in a generic way, but personally. And Jesus' calling to your life and my life is, yes, follow me, but he has also created you, church, uniquely, beautifully, He's gifted you. He's wired you. He's equipped you creatively. He's done this so personally and oh so affectionately. He's called you. You are fearfully, you are wonderfully made. Jesus has called you personally for a purpose. But before we dive too deep into that, we have to to really kind of get some handles on this uh, passage about what we're talking about, lest we misapply scripture today. There's two terms I want to just unpack briefly. Um, So take a little bit of exit here before we move any further. And and these two terms are disciple and apostle. Disciple is used throughout the Greek. It's this word methetis. I'm no Greek scholar. I don't know how to read Greek. Just, you know, preface it with that. Okay. So anything I bring to you is I've, I've learned myself this week in studying I encourage you to be a good student of the Word. Go and do your own study as well. But here's, here's some things I pulled out. Disciple is this learner, this student, this pupil, okay? Um, that Jesus calls these disciples. We know there's over 100 at least disciples that Jesus has following him. Uh, we know this because of an Acts. We see that in the upper room. 120 were gathered, right? Um, But we don't know exactly how many. It's used in this more generic term. Apostle is his messenger or carrier. In Scripture, 
we have both of this word, um, a, a narrow version, a narrow definition, and more of a broad definition. This word in Greek is apostolos. So let's look at the narrow definition real quick. The narrow definition of apostle has to do with an office. It is the office of apostle. And this is the context of what Jesus is calling his disciples to and drawing and, and, um, and calling them to here in the passage today, to an office of apostle. And again, we can only really guess at the exact number of apostles, but we know a few things. It started with these 12 men that are listed here. And it at least included Matthias, who replaced Judas Iscariot, Paul, James, Barnabas, Apollos. And then two unnamed men who could be one of these other men, or they could also be, you know, these two unnamed men could be both people that are already mentioned. So we don't know exactly how many apostles they, there were, um, but we know that all apostles in the office of apostle were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. They were also commissioned by Jesus himself. They were also uniquely called to record and write the Bible. The apostles were called to interpret what was happening, to record it, to write it, so that for generations to come, we might have the Word of God. And it would, they were called to a fix. It was fixed in a determined period of time. This office, we believe, uh, does not continue today. That after about the first century, this office ceased to exist. So in a nutshell, the apostles in the office had the authority from Jesus himself. This word um, was not uncommon, though, however. So it wasn't just some made-up word like Jesus started using or, or the gospel writers started using. It was a very common word for the time. Um, and on Ligonier website, which is a great resource, if you don't know this website, I don't know who the author was, but this is really helpful information regarding the uses of, of this word during this time under the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, an apostle, apostle was anyone with the authority to speak to others on behalf of the emperor. The apostolos had such authority that to disobey him was to disobey the Caesar. The apostolos delivered the emperor's word, which was as binding as it would have been if the emperor had been present to speak it himself. Here's the importance of the office of apostle. We must believe that the apostles' words documented for us in Scripture can carry as much authority, they do carry as much authority as Jesus' words himself. It is error to believe that Jesus' words carry more authority than Paul's words or, or uh, James or, uh, or Peter, right? Because the apostles were given a unique responsibility calling by Jesus to record God's word that we have today. The reason I bring this up is because if we read this passage today, if we read it and just try to directly apply it to our lives with what Jesus says and bypass who he's talking to in the context, then we uh, miss the dependency upon the apostles' witness that Jesus has given them that we ought to have. Make sense? And here's, here's um, 
one passage to just kind of nail this last uh, nail in the coffin here. Ephesians 2, 19 through 20 says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Jesus had appointed these men for this purpose, to lay a foundation for the church to be built upon. And it is because of this that we get to sit here today, open our Bibles, and understand God. That should stir gratitude in our hearts. That Jesus would go to these lengths, this specificity, to call these men to this purpose. And praise be to God. Okay, but there's also a broad definition of this. A broad definition of the word apostle used even in scripture is this word messenger, and that's how it's typically translated. So we would see apostle translated just apostolos directly as apostle, but then the broad usage would be a messenger. And this is someone, anyone who is commissioned by Jesus to be carriers of his gospel. And one example, there's, there's multiple, one is, example that's probably most familiar is, is Paul referring to Epaphroditus. He calls him a messenger of the gospel. So, you and I are called to two things. No matter who you are, if you're a Christian, you're called to two things today. And we're going to use this, this broad um, the term primarily today, but I want us to see this passage through, like, if you had glasses, you know, and two lenses... Um, you know, one lens is the narrow definition, one lens is the broad definition, and we're going to use our bifocals to now understand this passage today, okay? Um, If you're a Christian, you're called to two different things. Through this passage, we understand this. You are called to be Jesus's, and you are called to be sent. You are called to be his, and you are called to be sent. So the first one, you're called to be his. Read with me in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain, Jesus went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, that they might be with him. We'll stop there. That they might be with him. Mark's first reasoning behind Jesus calling the twelve is this, that they might be with him. As Jesus is with the Father, so his disciples are to be with him. This means that before we do anything, church, we must be. Before we go and do, we must be. Who we are precedes our doing. What we do is defined by who we are, not the other way around. It is not by accident that it is recorded this way. In passage for us. It is not by accident that we see that the first reasoning why Jesus would call them is so that they would be with him. It's not by accident that John Mark here, he uses the, the word um, desires. Those whom he desires. This is incredibly, again, countercultural right now because everyone around us is screaming, Autonomy, individuality. And how that is is defined by you. It's important to know as we read the Bible that it doesn't 
The Bible doesn't allow us to think this way. But the Bible does not speak against individuality. Again, we've heard it mentioned God has created you uniquely, beautifully, individuals of his body. Paul goes on to expound this wonderfully about how the body is made up of many different members, all called to different things, all for different purposes, uniquely. The Bible does not speak against individuality, but it informs it. It informs who we are. It says that you are uniquely, beautifully made. So, but that was... Uh, but that was given to you. You did not create it. You did not apply it to your life. Who you are is not something to be discovered, but it is something to be believed and embraced. Believed and embraced today. And man, we see this exemplified in the 12. I want to use these 12 as kind of a, just a study for us as we look now. And let's read verse 16 through 19 together. We'll, we'll skip 14 and 15 real quick. Jesus appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boronagus, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, the Simon, the Z- and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Um, what we see in these... And these 12 here is a few things, and I'll give you three. Disciples of Jesus are diverse. Okay, so we look at this group, and we kind of take a deep dive on it. Um, we have extremes represented, and then we have very moderate uh, uh, people represented. You have extremes like uh, Matthew, Levi, the tax collector, right? A betrayer of his own people. And then you have Judas or not Judas, um, Simon the Zealot, who uh, historians believe is a nationalist and, um, and almost executed holy war in his own people. All right? And then you have people like fishermen represented, just completely normal people, just like everyday jobs. You know, this is what we do. Very moderate point is that Jesus chose people that were not easy to get along with. If I was choosing these people, I would not be choosing the kind of people that Jesus chose because they weren't easy to get along with and they weren't all going to get along with each other. And you can look at some of these personalities, which we'll get into in a second, and realize really quickly, man, like, I would be just so annoyed at Jesus or thinking Jesus had lost his mind. It's impossible for understand this whole dynamic of why Jesus would desire these people unless he's either a lunatic, he doesn't know what he's doing, or he's Lord, and he knows how to use the weaknesses of his people to accomplish his, his will. How else do we have to describe it or to understand it today? This should bring us really a lot of comfort. Everyone's personality has good and bad wrapped up in it, right? I mean, your personality is given to you. It's, it's a good personality, but man, there's some, there's some excess to our personalities a lot. Second thing is this. So disciples are diverse, but they're also called differently. The word here is that Jesus appointed them. 
And this is odd in and of itself because, you know, traditionally a rabbi was someone you would choose to follow, almost like the rabbi would have to um, sell it to you, you know, to figure out, like, hey, you should follow me for these reasons. But Jesus appoints. The literal translation is actually pretty interesting. It's made. Jesus didn't, he, he made 12, which signifies something even different. It's, it's not simply people that he called like a, an elite few out of the many. But he made them into something. He made them into something unique and special. John chapter 15, verse 16, the Gospel of John says, You did not choose me, I chose you and appointed you. He's speaking to his disciples here. That you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. The Lord Jesus, church, he has the authority to call us to whatever task he wishes because this is not our mission. Not our mission. Your calling and whatever it is in life is not simply your calling. It submits itself to the mission of God. It is his. And he has made us differently to serve this mission. We, you know, when we look at these disciples again, they're called to different things. We, we read a lot. We, we know a lot about Peter. We know a lot about James. We know a lot about John. Um, some of the, we know some about Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Judas Iscariot. And we know next to nothing about the rest. Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot. Are you content... Am I content? As I look at this passage, and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm wrestling through this this week, I'm saying, Jesus, am I content with, like, the, the Count of Zinzendorf? I don't know if you guys know this, um, this quote. He says, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Josiah, are you content with that? Are you content with just being called to, and used, whatever Jesus wants you to do, die and be forgotten? Because that's what happened here to these men. That's what happened to the majority of Jesus' disciples. We know nothing about them. They're dead. They're gone. No one knows. And yet, the good news is, the grace of God is that God used them for purposes to accomplish His mission that we may never know about until we get to the other side of eternity. Praise be to God for that. They are forgotten but God has not forgotten them. Point number three. Disciples of Jesus are imperfect. Okay, so let's look at these, some of these personalities real quick. Sons of thunder. Sons of thunder. Uh, this is an endearing term, pretty sure, that Jesus gives James and John, but it's not something you should be proud of. It's really coming from being short-tempered, short-fused, just go off the wall any minute, right? Again, these are a really good example of excess of personality, a lot of personality. In every situation, you're like, what are James and John going to do? I mean, you remember where James and John, they approach Jesus, and they're like, hey, Jesus, when, when we get to the new kingdom, let us sit on your left and your right. And like the rest of the disciples are probably just like, I can't believe they're asking him that right now. These guys have lost their mind. 
I mean, they have so much excess personality. You're just like, Jesus, you made a mistake. You made a mistake. These guys are not it. They can't be in on this. Their misguided ambition had to be corrected by Jesus. And I'm sure it exemplified itself a lot. Simon, whom Jesus gave the name Peter, which is translation of a word rock, which is irony in of itself because Jesus or Peter would prove to be fickle and unreliable. At least that is until the Holy Spirit fell and, and filled his life and he preached to the thousands and thousands came to know him. Good reminder to us that God's work is never complete in our lives. And then even still we have this glaring imperfection in this list. Judas Iscariot. He stands in this list as an inescapable reminder that the community called by God is not a utopian society. There is so much imperfection. You know, like Mark, 30 somewhat years after this account, is writing this. Why would he choose to put Judas' name in the list? Except for the fact that, man, he knows. Like, God used him to say, like, no, this is not a perfect bunch of people. There was even a man who betrayed Jesus, who sold him for 30 pieces of silver, for crying out loud. God's community is imperfect. Take a good look at this list, church. Take a good look, and you will not find a top-notch, qualified bunch of leaders and men. You will find people scrambling to know how to relate to Jesus, trying to interpret every one of his words, constantly confounded by what he's saying and confused, doing the wrong thing all the time. But it's not their lack of understanding or their lack of understanding does not compromise their discipleship. Their lack of know-how does not compromise who they are. What Jesus had to teach them could only come from being near him. And he knew this. And so he said, I will call you and you will come near me. The apostles' full understanding came only when they had the vantage point of the cross. And man, isn't that so for us today? How can we understand any of this glorious truth except for to seek Jesus? Jesus on the cross. And they, I'm sure the disciples afterwards had to say, like, man, I, I have to follow this. I have to give my life to this. My leader, my rabbi, not only died, he rose again and has commissioned me to go. And knowing full well that that calling was not going to be easy. Again, unlike a typical student of a rabbi who would, the expectation would be to surpass their leader one day, it never is so for you and I. It never is so for the disciples. No, they would follow in his footsteps and they would remain needy of his leadership until they die. Man. And so they are called to be sent. And so are you and I. We're called to be his and we're called to be sent. This one's shorter and I'm almost done. Verse 14, second half of it here, he says... Uh, so that they may be with him, and second reason here, that he might send them out to preach, to have authority over, uh, to cast out demons. Mark tells us um, 
that the second reasoning is twofold. It is to preach the gospel, is to proclaim the good news of Jesus, to carry on his proclamation, and to have the authority over demons. So Jesus empowers his disciples with the same authority that he has. He came, in, in chapter 1, we read a mark where he said, he, I came to proclaim the good news. This is what Jesus is saying. I, I'm giving you authority to go preach, to proclaim. And then to cast out demons, to have power over the forces of evil. It was not to proclaim what they feel or what they think about something. Get this. It was to proclaim what they have seen and heard. It was not their... Their words that brought any power is what they saw and heard and, re- and, and then relayed that had power. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is not a proclamation of our words done in our own power, but rather God's words in his power because we are sent by Jesus. That's the good news, churches. We, we're not sent out. We're not sent out just on our own. Just kind of make up something, figure it out, figure out what kind of giftings and tools you have to be able to use, and just, and just go do it. No, you're given a call and a commission and a responsibility by Jesus, the authority over all creation. And he has not only just called you out, sent you out, but he's equipped you. He's equipped you with the words. He's given you the gospel. What's probably most significant about the apostles, though, is that Jesus appoints 12 of them. And you probably know this, but this is representative of the 12 tribes of Judah. Both tribes of Israel. Remember, all this is going somewhere. It's not arbitrary. Jesus has entered into our world to initiate something, and Jesus came to build a new Israel out of the old one. And so he's so he establishes apostles. As I'm going to build something new through you, as Pastor Ryan said earlier, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Nothing can thwart it. There's a great parallel here. Verse 7 in our passage talks about Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea. Does this language remind you of another passage anywhere? Acts 1.8. This is immediately where my mind went. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Okay, Jesus is already resurrected, right? And he's ascending to the Father. Before he ascends, he says these words. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. But now, get this. Not just Edomea, 170 miles away, to the ends of the earth. It's going somewhere, church. Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Indeed, 12 men were not able to reach all the nations, right? But it is upon the foundation of these 12 men, the foundation that was already laid through Christ and his work, that we continue the mission forward. Not my story. It belongs to God. It's not your story. It belongs to God. It's his story to the world. On the other hand, it's been given to you. And it is your story to tell. It is yours to tell through the means that God has given you. 
We are to be good stewards of this story, of this gospel. It's like we're stewards with the money, the resources, the time we have in our lives. So what I want to submit to you today is that proclamation of God's good news to the world is not confined to a method or a certain skill set or certain personalities or even a particular bunch of people. God has intended to use you, every one of you, and me. He wants to do this. He chose us, not despite us, but because of us. And it's not in the way that we might think when we hear that. Not because we deserve it or because we have something great to bring to the table. On the contrary, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being may boast. No human being may boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom, and from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let our boast be in him, church. You are called to be sent, and the fact is you are already sent. You're already sent. We're already here. You've already been sent. The commission's been given. Go and make disciples. So are you content with whatever God has called you to do to the extent of whatever he asks you to do? It? Is he calling you to something today? Let me close in this band. You can come up. What's he calling you today? Is he calling you to something new? Is he calling you to go? You know, guys... May we never be about simply filling these pews or another set of pews or some other chairs just for the sake of filling up. A friend of mine said a while back, like, if we remain at 30 people forever and we always send people everywhere to be able to start something new, so be it. Because we are a sent people. We are not called to, to build some kind of little kingdom. Pastor Ryan, me, I need to remind myself of that. I need to know that. I need to trust it, that God has called me to be sent. What has he called you to? Is it here? Is it somewhere else? Will you be obedient is really the most important thing. No matter what restrictions are placed on you and I, man, especially in this time right now, with all the COVID stuff and everything, like, man, these cannot limit us or restrict us from our mission. They cannot. They cannot restrict us from the call that God has placed on our lives. They cannot restrict us from reaching our neighbors. They cannot restrict us from being sent to where we need to be sent. I hope that you see this morning that God, he may not need you, but he wants you. He wants you so dearly. He desires you. Praise be to God for that. And what I've been really just chewing on, um, this week is this, that God, you don't need me, you want me. And you may not need me, but my neighbors need me. The world needs me. 
God may not need you, church, but the world does. The world needs to hear you, see you. So go, be obedient, follow him. He's worth it. As we transition to communion now, um, really we, we come with this understanding that Jesus, he took his very life and he sacrificed it. He gave it so that we might be near him and sent by him. So as you come today and you take these means, this bread and this cracker and this juice, and you eat again, may you be satisfied in Jesus. May you, as you eat it, obey the words of Jesus himself. says, eat my flesh, drink my blood, be satisfied in me. I am the bread of life. You won't find it anywhere else. And know that wherever God sends you, it is always so. You're always satisfied in Christ. So when you're ready, the band's going to play. We're going to play up here. We're going to sing. And then we invite you to come to the table. The only requirement to come to the table today, you don't have to be a part of this church. We just ask that you believe and trust in Jesus. Say, Jesus is my Lord. He's my Savior. And if you're making that proclamation today for the first time, great. You don't have to prove something to anyone else here. Okay? It just has to be done in honesty and authenticity. We come to the Lord's table and say, Jesus. I want you and you alone. Let's come. Let's celebrate in Christ. Amen.